like a civil war on which only one side has weapons, both policy weapons and sadly uh, oppressive weapons as well. Yo, hello, good day everyone, welcome to another episode of Equals. Yeah, another episode, another sunny day. Another another sunny day, but, but some reasons to not really feel too sunny right now. I've got to say, Nabil, I've never seen you look this depressed. I You're mean, such an upbeat person, <laughs> what's wrong? Mate, I mean, there's, where do I start? There's coronavirus, there's the turn that politics is taking around the world. It's kind of, it's a tough time to be a progressive because... You feel you're on this ascent, things are getting more excited, and before you know it, you're just descending. Well, yeah, maybe. I feel for you. I mean, I, I'm really upbeat because uh, I actually climbed Mount Kenya, which I've been wanting to do for years. And, it's a uh, very tall mountain. <laughs> it's really, really tall. It's like 16,000 feet or something like that. That's a lot like of that. feet. That's a lot of feet. And it's really hard. You have to get up at 2.30 in the morning, and you walk in the dark, and then... When you get to the top, the sun is rising. You can see for like 100 miles. I mean, it was deep. I'm telling you, it was really You're deep. You're sounding almost spiritual. I, 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 Yeah, I think, you know, it was pretty spiritual. I feel we're connecting finally on, on, a, on a level that we've never connected before, Max. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll uh, rediscover God. Who knows? M- maybe, but, but this isn't a podcast about religion, is it? Not yet, not yet. But I mean, <laughs> who knows what direction it's going? No, we're, so we're here to talk about fighting for a fairer world. That's what this podcast is all about. For the time being, yeah. Okay, okay. So, uh, so get over it. So... We're going to be talking to somebody who's who's a really a big deal, actually, in fighting for a fairer world. She is. Sharon yes, she Burroughs. Really is. Sharon Burroughs, yeah, she's basically the leader of the global trade union movement. She's the head of the ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation. And she's really on the front line in over 150 countries around the world, fighting for workers' rights and, and winning, right? So, so, and we have the pleasure of speaking to her today. Yeah, let's listen to it. Okay, welcome, Sharon, and thanks so much for doing this interview with us on Equals. Um, I've been a fan of yours for many, many years. Um, we've been on the odd panel together, and uh, yeah, you're one of my heroes. I think you're really fighting uh, fighting inequality and fighting for workers, so it's really good to have this opportunity to talk. Well, hello, and it's, uh, that's very kind of you. Sharon, it really is an honour. And, and let, let me start, before going into the issues, let me start just by asking a little bit about you, right? And I, I read about you coming from a small little town in New South Wales in Australia, where you were a teacher. And today you're the global trade union leader, right? You're described as, and I read somewhere, the union boss of union bosses, union bosses. Oh my goodness. It was in The Guardian, right? She's the individual with possibly the largest democratic mandate in the world, 160 countries, which is a little bit scary, I guess, for, for somebody sitting sitting on a panel with you. What what motivates you, Sharon? How you know What, what drives you? Well, I have the most privileged job in the world. I get to work for and with workers. I can go to almost any country and be met by a family, no matter what their ethnicity or religion's background or where they work, what their occupation is, and uh, and indeed what race or uh, or uh, you know uh, gender orientation they hold, and because we share the same values. We're committed to democratic rights and freedoms. And, uh, you know, beyond that, when workers tell me that there's a problem, I have the luxury of, uh, you know, making trouble anywhere in the world, provided we are determined to win 
and make change. What is the kind of two-way relationship in your mind between the gap between rich and poor and the extent to which workers are organised, workers are unionised? How, how are those two things related? What we have now is a global labour force that's in deep trouble. 60% of workers around the world are actually working in informal work. That means no rights, no minimum wage, no rule of law. And of course, those conditions are pretty awful. I walk the supply chains and the domestic industries uh, in countries around the world, and it would make anybody weep to see the level of dehumanising exploitation that our current model of global trade has actually uh, uh, evolved through their global supply chain. So are people uh, desperate? Yes, that's then personal despair, family despair, and we're living through an age of anger that is about people being so fearful of uh, their capacity to make ends meet that, in fact, they are, uh, you know, they are losing trust in any kind of institutions, including our democracies. So you see people on the continents, uh, uh, in every continent, on the streets, and it's it's mm. against a rising tide of authoritarianism, of dictatorship, fascism, sweeping across Europe. But most of all, it's about their fear for themselves and their families. And that anger is palpable. But when you know that global labour income share, the share of that wealth going to workers and their families, has taken a nosedive consistently since the early 90s, even as that wealth, as I said, trebled, then that's where that uh, practical reality and the consequent anger comes from. Do you pin it on an fail on a failed ideology of neoliberalism? Do you do you pin it on you know shareholder dominance? Do you pin it on you know the wrong kind of business model? How 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 do you see it? Well, it's all of that. We have a failed global model of economy, a failed model of development where you see the wealthy countries protecting themselves through trade agreements and so on and stripping uh, developing economies of their rights to industry policy to development. Ironically, and it's a good thing, with the climate crisis, then industry policy is back because we have to solve the, the problem through changing nature, systemic change right through every industry. That is about technology shifts, but it's also about the way we work, the energy we use. And the fear for us is that even as we get that right, it won't be again technology that's shared with developing economies. Sadly, we've got policymakers still living on the belief that the trickle-down theory will work. In other words, if some people get wealthier, if economies get wealthier, then people will rise with it. We know that's failed. We know that you can't attack collective bargaining rights. You can't uh, have minimum wages that are so low people can't live on them at a very basic level with dignity. And you, and if you attack that or, and, and social protection or indeed don't implement social protection, then we have a fundamental problem that the basic security of uh, employment, income and social protection is simply not available to people and, uh, you know, that creates civil disruption. Indeed, in some countries at the moment, we talk about the fact that it looks like a civil war 
on which only one side has weapons, both policy weapons and sadly uh, oppressive weapons as well. And that's that's very interesting, Sharon, because that's that's you know that's almost like the challenge we face now and the challenge that's built up over the last few decades. But it seems to me that this challenge is only going to be increasing in 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 the years and the decades to come. And I wanted to I wanted to bring in robots, right? And I wanted to talk <laughs> to you about <laughs> we're, we're going to have to get to the robots, aren't we? Um, and you know we're living in a time of of artificial artificial intelligence, automation. I read this stat the other day about the World Bank saying that you know two thirds of jobs in the developing world now are susceptible to automation. And you've got the stats, and I can tell you, I live in Nairobi, Sharon. And every every other day, I'm meeting you know an Uber driver who tells me how their you know how their fares are coming down, how they're being exploited, and and how the guys in Silicon Valley are are, are winning from all of this. I wanted to ask you, you know, how how in this age of automation, how do you actually build workers' power? How are trade unions responding to this age? When you look at the problem of uh, a new raised Uber, but if you look at the problem of platform business, it's the business model. You know, the technology is great. I mean, why shouldn't people be able to get a car service if that's what they want in two to five mm. minutes? The problem is the exploitation of the worker based on the business model. But you can regulate that. You know, governments can regulate that and they're doing it across Europe. So it's uh, it's the developing world and, of course, America where the challenge is on. If you look at the fight in California, the uh, you know, the companies who don't like the law that would make people uh, employees – are fighting a referendum and they've got something like a war chest of $90 million to do it, to simply not have to treat the workers who drive us as uh, as employees. I mean, that's a scandal in itself. But when you get to the question of artificial intelligence, well, the real question is people in control. Are people in control? Artificial intelligence depends on two things, data sets and algorithms, and it's people who actually decide the scope of the data sets and who develop the algorithms, including the algorithms which are now developing their own algorithms. That's pretty scary. But it's still people in control of that. Now, the real question is, are we going to legislate responsibility for those people or corporations with consequences when they're liable for the oppression, the unsafe products, the lack of regulatory frame, or indeed the abuse of human and labour rights. And if you look at what those labour protection floor, what it is for all workers, then the elements are indeed a minimum wage on which you can live with dignity, evidence-based, of course, fundamental rights, including the right to bargain collectively, to organise, freedom of association, and uh, occupational health and safety. And then, of course, we need some regulatory environments around maximum hours of work so people can actually uh, work to live and not live to work. So these problems are as solvable today with technology as they've always been, but we have to come back to the will of governments to regulate. I never thought we'd have to face this, but, you know, the rise of conflict, the rise of civil uh, Uh, despair and disruption, we need to actually look at rebuilding democracies because that's the real um, institutional risk here. Our democracies aren't perfect. In fact, even within democratic countries, we're seeing the rise of authoritarianism. Mm. And unless governments are responsible 
for improving and monitoring and ensuring compliance against rights. Plus, unless they engage people in a process that goes way beyond the ballot box, we're not going to rebuild trust in democracy. I think, Sharon, just on the last point about rebuilding democracy, I mean, one of the things I, I was really interested to ask you about was obviously the role of trade unions in that and of organising and organising today's modern young workforce all over the world, often women working in terrible, precarious conditions. I think of the young women I met recently in, in Myanmar, you know, working in sweatshops, producing um, you know, fast fashion. I remember being really inspired because they'd just joined a union and for them, a union wasn't something from the history books. It was something very real that was delivering for them delivering better wages for garment workers. Um, tell us a bit about kind of how do we organise young people today? How do we organise, how do we rebuild the kind of trade union counterbalance, if you like, to the billionaires, to the political capture of, of the rich, of our democracies? I'm optimistic about young people. You know, there's all these myths out there that young people don't care, they don't uh, join things, they don't, they're not conscious about either their history or their future. I can tell you one of the most fascinating parts of my job is to watch older trade union leaders and young trade union leaders actually engage in intergenerational conversation mm -hmm. because there is no less passion, there is no less concern, but we have to be conscious, of course, of making sure that young people feel like they, they are being listened to. And that requires a solidarity across the generations. But it's the young women in Myanmar who, for me, are the hope of the side. They know what they want. Mm. They want to have a decent work life. They want to be able to help their families. And they want to be able to build a future. But that's everywhere. Myanmar is just one uh, example. You know, I've been in places where when we took on Samsung in Asia, the Asian workers told me this was the worst company in Asia. And I said, really? You know, can't, can't we start with a, uh, a uh, company that, you know, I can kind of feel like we can go and have some dialogue with? No, they said, this is terrible. Well, you go to the Philippines, Indonesia, you know, Malaysia, Vietnam, it's, it's uh, well over 20% of the Vietnamese GDP, the same in, in Korea. And you have a company that's totally anti-union but I can tell you now we're still building the dialogue but that company has committed to freedom of association to fundamental human rights they're doing their first human rights uh, report and indeed they're opening a dialogue with our global uh, industrial body well, now it'll take time but that's what you get when you've got the the courage of people in Asia who, of course, I had no choice but to listen to, and we mapped out a campaign. And, uh, you know, four years later, we have a dialogue. And Sharon, can you allow me for a moment to uh, to take my neoliberal hat out of my wardrobe for a second and <clears throat> come back with a couple of challenges that, you know, that we, that, that we hear from time to time that, you know, that unions are not relevant in this day and age where you can get legal advice at the click of a finger or, you know, or they have a history of, of, of holding back companies from being able to compete in the global market. You know, what, what, how do you respond to these kinds of arguments that unions are less relevant in this day and age? Well, I usually chuckle because, to be <laughs> honest, you've got to look at who's saying that. 
and what lengths they're going to stop unions functioning. So when you, if you start with your second premise that they're holding companies back, you know, we don't want to uh, uh, see a company go belly up. We want decent work. And the reason they say things like that is it's code for we want to exploit workers so that we can make more profit. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the, the countervailing power argument. If you don't have unions or collective action, I mean, it's not about the institution, it's about workers being able to act collectively, then you don't have a balance of power. Corporate America thinks that freedom of speech is uh, actually means the freedom to attack the rights of people to join a union. So it's uh, it's extraordinary, really. Now, there are some people, to your first premise, who don't understand the role of unions. And that's that's a challenge for us. We have to be able to give people confidence that we aren't, uh, you know, as much as we're proud of that kind of uh, history of the male trade union strength that you alluded to, and I am proud of it. You know, I come from a family that not only fought, uh, you know, for basic rights for workers, but helped build the alternate democratic parties that gave, um, in those days, working people a voice. So, you know, we are proud of that history, but that's not our reality today. You know, we've got more and more women joining unions, more and more uh, democratic shift in age is bringing more young people into the mix. But the fight for fundamental rights, for a for decent work, for secure jobs, it remains the same. That's a very compelling argument, Sharon. Um, I think you've convinced uh, uh, Nabil's neoliberal side. <laughs> <laughs> Which is only... I like, don't... I, I was going to say, I don't believe I don't believe he has one, but, you know. The cat is back in the wardrobe for yeah. now. But, um. You know, I must say, I'm very proud of the courage of union men and women who are on the front lines of every one of those struggles Me too. that Me we too. talked about. Because yeah. you can't believe the courage and the denial of, you know, the the security that they face every day you know we are constantly bringing in global solidarity get people out of jail trade union incarcerations in fact deaths are on the rise again so you know labor rights defenders are human rights defenders and with you know your team and your membership we all coalesce in broader trade union civil society partnership that says this is about democracies that work for people, and that means that the, the fundamental rights protected by the rule of law are critical. And Sharon, I have to give a shout out at this stage to, to you know, to that amazing and very powerful global rights index that that the ITUC produces. It's, it's, it's it, you know, you read it almost with a sense of trepidation each year yeah. to see how how much oh, we do too. <laughs> But it also just shows, you know, the, the bravery of those people who are defending workers' rights. Uh, well, it also frames the conversation we've just had because if you close civic space and the rights index has shown consistently for the last five years that governments, you know, are being cowered by the global economic forces, including our institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, you mm. know, Bretton Woods institutions need to be indeed uh, reformed as well and the WTO is not fit for purpose anymore we need a global set of institutions that manage 
a model of economy, you know, advice and funding support that is, again, centred on people for which economies serve. So when you uh, think about the index and that recognition that you face, we face, all our all our human rights defenders face of closing civil space. That's the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, you're, you're so right. Sharon, I find it really interesting now, just, just the way you talk about winning change in policy, winning change with governments. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to pick out this example that, that I've been following a bit with, with Qatar. You know, Qatar is a country in, in a region with, you know, some of the worst, worst uh, you know, labor regulations in the world. It's also going to be home to the World Cup in 2022, the world's, you know, arguably the world's largest sporting event. Could you talk us through a little bit how you, how you strike this balance, and balance might even be the wrong word, but how you negotiate between, you know, being such a, a critical and challenging and outspoken voice in solidarity with, with people on the ground and then actually sitting across the table with, you know, from a government and, and, and pushing them on policies. How, how do you get that right? Well, you have, to, uh, you have to, first of all, fight the campaign. You know, for five years, I couldn't talk to the government. And in fact, uh, in many ways, chose not to because the few discussions we did have were meaningless. We only ever go into a campaign to win. And winning means you then have to accept responsibility when you get the opportunity to negotiate a way through, to make the changes, to use the power of people, our workers around the world, with our civil society colleagues who fought that campaign. So we now have a three-year agreement with the ILO that I negotiated with the government. There is an ILO office there, the International Labour Organisation, and uh, and indeed we have a changed set of, of laws that agreement committed the Qatari government to change the laws, to change their practice and the timeframes in which it would happen with an annual report back to the International Labour Organization's governing body, which is tripartite workers, governments and employers. And I have to say that all the laws to end kafala are now in place, minus uh, the actual law, although the practice has changed, on the uh, capacity to... Um, to change jobs, but the exit visas are gone for everybody, including domestic workers. So the freedom to actually travel, the right to be uh, free of your employer has gone because there are now contracts in place, not the old sponsorship system. And when we get that final law within the month, we hope, the kafala system will be dead forever. Now, that doesn't mean everything's perfect. Nothing's ever perfect in an industrial relations setting. And, of course, this is a country where we also had to simultaneously build the rule of law in implementation. So we've built labour courts, and uh, it, it would make you cry to see those workers having finally the chance to take their complaints to a court. We've helped train... Uh, the uh, the judges with some of our experts from around the world and the ILO mentor them. If we get this right, that's ultimately going to be a guide for countries like my own, for Australia. I mean, we're going to increasingly face temperatures of 40 to 50 degrees. Now, we have a rule of law about not working in those temperatures, but even then, you will still get situations where we need to manage that very carefully. And even Europe's talking about maximum temperatures for work. So with climate change, 
it isn't just the devastation of extreme weather events. It's the adaptation and the rule of law that's required for safe work, as well as many, many other areas. Really, it's a really inspiring example, Sharon. And we, we've got to congratulate you for that, because this is literally, I mean, part of what you mentioned there is literally a system of, of slavery, right? Modern slavery. And, oh, it was uh... modern slavery. No question. And we're still mopping it up. But I have to say, you know, if you go back now uh, seven years, I'd rather be where we are today with real hope for those workers than where we were then. Which is a great segue to our final question, uh, Sharon. We ask everybody uh, when we interview them, just just a question about hope, really. Where, where in all of this work do you find the most hope in the fight against inequality, in the fight to close the gap between uh, rich and poor? Oh, people. You have to, you cannot work with people and not feel, despite the despair, the hope of their commitment to a struggle that is about a secure future, not even for themselves, but for their families, for their communities. You know, the power of people has always been the strength in our democracies. My worst fear is the declining trust in democracy and the rise of uh, authoritarianism or dictatorship or the or the extreme right as a result. But it's the hope of people and their power to affect change that uh, I think is the motivation for everybody to continue to fight for our own future. Sharon, we feel an incredible amount of solidarity with you and, and all the work that you're doing with, all, with, with, with everyone who's part of the ITUC as well. So we've got to thank you for this, for this amazing interview. Thank you for your time. Yes, thank you, Sharon. That was thank great. you. And as always, a delight to talk to friends. What an amazing interview, Max, with, with, with Sharon. I found it really insightful, really inspiring. I mean, it's really hard to overstate just how important collective action trade unions are for in the fight for a fairer world. I mean, frankly, we could probably just have a whole podcast series about collective action. Oh, we could. I mean, it, it is really, really important. I mean, economically, it's critical. You know, the last 30 years, you've seen decline in union membership. You've seen this big increase in inequality. But also in terms of kind of the popular consciousness and politics, it's where so many have learned their politics through union organising. That's really interesting, Max, because... Let's let's not go into my maybe mixed history with unions, but I think of I think of somebody like my stepdad, a really wonderful man. You know, he's been a bus driver for for a few decades now, and for 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 him, his place in his union movement is really part of his political consciousness, and 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 I, I find that really powerful. I Me also too. see how 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 unions have been crushed around the world. We're still seeing crackdowns on unions actually around the world. But there's also many, many, many stories of hope, especially in the global south. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about it in the interview with Sharon, but I, I was lucky enough to meet with young trade unionists, all, all women in Myanmar. They they sew clothes for the Gap, for H&M, you know, and they were successfully fighting for better wages, better conditions. And what really inspired me was how trade unions had really they were just made sense for all these young people there was no baggage there was just an understanding that joining a union made total sense well, you know i think I, I almost this this shouldn't almost be news really should it because if you take a step back you look at the big victories through the last few hundred years you look at you know look at the working week you look at safety at work you look at limits of working hours 
you know, it's really unions that have fought for that. I feel kind of we need to teach and educate and learn about this a lot more. Definitely. I always love the slogan which you see on Workers' Day, which is, thank your union for the weekend. You yeah. know, people, people just do not realise how hard won their freedoms are and how... How many people really fought, and now what unions did for them? For them, yeah, and 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 I think you mentioned winning there as well. What I found most powerful about the interview for, with with Sharon now is the way she spoke about winning and that example of of what what Sharon and the ITUC with the ILO and and others have won in Qatar for workers' rights is really quite inspiring. Working towards a minimum wage, ending that modern system of of, of modern slavery. Kafala, that's real stuff. It's real stuff. And, and that is one of the great things about trade unions. There's no opportunity to be in your ivory tower. You need to have to be out there fighting and winning struggles. And it is really inspiring. It really is. Dare I say, Max, I feel a little bit better than I did at the start of this interview. Yeah, this podcast is kind of therapy for you, isn't it? It, it, it really is therapy. It really is therapy. And, and I hope it's therapy for you out there as well. That that brings us to a to a close for today. Um, I can only ask and, and recommend you to share this podcast with your friends, with your family. Maybe they're also looking for hope. Do hit that button, subscribe. Yeah, and rate us really highly as well, all those kind of things. <laughs> anyway, thanks everyone. Talk to you next time. Do join us next time. Thanks everyone. <laughs>